is Dr. George Crosby, who's with the Department of Plant Sciences at the State University of New York, Cobleskill, New York. Dr. Crosby. Thanks very much. Have you folks got a half hour left in you before we eat? I'm hoping you do. I do. Uh, I have a very, very dear friend of mine who's a former student from the early 90s from Uganda. And he promised me a number of years ago that any time I were to speak to a group and I were to show a single picture of Uganda, that I would be obligated in his mind to greet you with Jambo. And I have to tell you something about Jambo. It is not one of those words like good morning when you can get a really happy face on somebody or they can kind of do a morning, right? You know what I'm talking about? Jambo is a happy word. It's very hard to say it without a smile. So on behalf of Pastor David Wako of Kaliro, Uganda, I greet you with Jambo, and I never have talked anywhere where I haven't gotten one back. Jambo. Ah, now I'm feeling pretty good. And thank you for that. It's important that I preface my comments, my fairly specific comments on a plant called Moringa with a bit of background that I'm given the opportunity as the last speaker of this session to go back and revisit some of the comments of the previous speakers. First of all, the question regarding uh, minimum tillage uh, or no tillage, and as Ron spoke about his five uh, golden rules, so to speak, of um, the tropics, uh, the humid tropics, they actually would match very nicely for the dry tropics. So. Um, as we think about things like organic matter, um, mulching, crop cover, uh, uh, maximum biodiversity, uh, zero tillage, those all also describe basically the way market farms function in the humid northeast of this country. There has been a massive movement towards those exact practices by farms that are practicing organic um, uh, techniques of production, that are in a 10 to 50 acre range. And for those of you that have interest in that, the Sustainable Agriculture and Research Education Fund, or SARE.org, has amazing resources. And there are some incredible DVDs, DVDs that I'll be taking with me next time I go back to Uganda, uh, where I work, uh, because they are so closely aligned with the types of uh, problems and issues that we encounter uh, in East Africa. So the title of my talk, Managing Moringa for Leaf Biomass Production to Combat Mal Malnutrition, that probably in and of itself was enough to send some folks running out the door today. But we're going to take a look at a few things before we do that that I think may be of interest. Um, first of all, when you travel and you work and you spend time doing agriculture in some of these areas, uh, it is easy to humble yourself before the Lord and hope that uh, and pray that he will lift you up. So make no uh, mistake, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. If you're a person who carries that Western arrogance in with you and leaves thinking that you have done amazing, amazing work and you have very few questions in mind when you return, you've probably made some really big mistakes along the way because things are so different in terms of production there agriculturally, that would be a huge mistake if you thought you were going to go in and have all the answers. I actually um, am an agricultural missionary with a Baptist mission called World Venture. And as I sat this morning uh, and, I, and I listened to that very amazing uh, presentation um, by Dr. Wiseman as far as the, the cosmos and just the heavens, uh, I couldn't help but keep thinking of Psalm 139. And when I'm in the bush out near the Congo border and I step outside and I pick up a little device in my hand and I punch in a bunch of numbers and almost like she's around the corner, as I stand out there under the, under the stars, I can talk to my wife. 
And then I think about the sorts of activities that we're trying to deal with right there on a daily basis in Uganda. It's almost surreal that that could be the case, that it could be 2008, and that we have that level of dichotomy between the, the actions and the activities that we're involved with. So the work that I do primarily, I do some work in Nigeria. I've done agricultural missions work in uh, central Mexico and the British West Indies as well, all of which actually have a lot of similarity one to the next. Uh, we're out in Kasese District uh, in western Uganda near the Congo border, probably about a half hour's dr drive or so, in a little town called Kiburara at Western Uganda Baptist Theological College. I've also done work across the country as far as uh, just the Kenya border. We'll talk a little bit about some of those activities. So last night our speaker challenged us to do something for the children, to consider the children. And I think the focus was primarily thinking about his grandchildren and the children of the U.S. And I would suggest today respectfully that we have a lot of children that are counting on us. Men of science, men and women of science, and uh, men and women of faith. We have a lot of children that are counting on us to be, to be obedient to God's word, to use our science in a way that's going to help improve their lives, their families' lives. Uh, one of the projects that we're involved with at this little tiny Bible college called WUBTC is a water project. And um, it is a fascinating combination of those that have different talents and abilities that have been brought together. And so as we jump back, whoops, where we go? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And in this particular instance, we have a combination of a missionary with a MDIV with some folks from EMI, and I've seen at least one EMI t-shirt here, and I know we have a large number of engineers here, doing an amazing project where in order to bring water and to grow food at this Bible college uh, with no electricity, no running water, we have to do some things that are a little bit non-traditional. And one of those things would be to lift water uh, about 140 feet, about 25, 140 feet of lift, about 2,500 feet of distance in order to get it to the Bible college. And because so much of the time is spent carrying water from the time that you're able to do any job at all, you'll be carrying water, as these children are, and carrying that water not just a short distance, but perhaps a mile, perhaps even two miles, uh, and probably uphill because, of course, the water is uh, in the low-lying areas. So this project, taken on by a missionary who doesn't have an engineering background necessarily, although he's extremely creative, he's extremely gifted, um, and EMI involved putting together um, two 30-foot solar panels, two 30-foot stands, actually, with 1,000 pounds of solar panels uh, that would be elephant-proof, that would be theft-proof, that could provide enough flow there uh, on the equator to be able to provide not only agricultural water for about 20 half-acre plots um, for the students and the faculty, unlike uh, George Fox University or where I teach, uh, if you're a student there or a faculty member, you have to grow your own food. You don't have the choices that we have there. And uh, just, just within the last couple of weeks, this project has been finished up. And I promised uh, the Sundells, if they're here, are you here? From Clifton Park, New York. Uh, I promised you a picture, if I could find one, of Janet Strike and just in visiting with folks and networking. There's Janet right there, a little fuzzy on the screen, but uh, uh, somebody that you've known for a very long time who is the EMI engineer that was involved with this project. So our other speakers today have outlined the problems 
um, they are overwhelming sometimes to consider. And my experience with my students, my experience with my peers as I speak at Bible colleges and any kind of community, community group that I can come up with that would invite me is that a lot of these numbers are new uh, for folks. And it's kind of something in terms of world hunger that people like to put in a box and stick on a shelf. It's not something that you want to think about and look at and focus on uh, a great deal. It's not comfortable. But we're going to take a little bit closer look at it today and think a bit about the past. And not a lot of time because some of the speakers have mentioned this. But if you go back between you know, 1973 and 1980, there was about $5 billion in aid that uh, flowed into agriculture um, into Africa and uh, half of it from the World Bank. And then in 1985, the World Bank calculated that probably one-third of its agricultural projects there in West Africa and more than half of the East Africa projects had failed there. And the missionary that I worked with with World Venture recommended to me uh, in January when I was last in Uganda uh, to take a look at The Fate of Africa by Martin Meredith. Anybody ever take a look at that at all? It's a 700-page uh, painful read that will take you through the history of uh, the failings in African nations and uh, the challenges that, that loom ahead for us as far as making some changes there. In that book, um, you will come face to face with a description of not just what hunger means. When you're hungry because it's almost 6 o'clock and you're hoping this last speaker is done, the hunger that we all experience is based on our own frame of reference. And I'm not going to make the assumption that no one here has experienced true hunger, but it's likely that we've not. Uh, but the type of hunger that we're talking about, the type of hunger that's portrayed in this book, for my students, um, for each of us, uh, it's probably a good thing for us to understand exactly what it's like when you have the, the conditions under which these folks live. Because it, it forces us to think outside of what hunger is based on my belly and your belly. <clears throat> on May 14th, uh, Peter McPherson uh, went before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and indicated that in 1990, about 12% of global official development assistance went to agriculture. It's about 4%. Ron, you mentioned that. Um, in the early 80s, 30% of the World Bank lending was for ag. Uh, by the early 2000s, it's down to about 10%. And finally, he summed up in brief, the world neglected the long-term development needs of agriculture for many years. So... And that is a pretty big problem and something that's important for us, I think, to understand. I had a chance to go down uh, to Washington in June to the Association for International Agriculture and Rural Development um, conference there. And in their issue brief, they made mention of how agriculture provides food and livelihoods for 75% of the population in developing countries and for 85% of the poor, but only 4% of the uh, assistance, again. And the agriculture is the backbone of employment in rural areas reduces that movement to the cities, as we've heard previously today as well, and then a more balanced approach that perhaps would be more inclusive of agriculture, um, something that was rejected back in the 60s when one of the, many of these nations looked to development and industrialization and rejected agriculture as not being sufficient to drive the engine of the economy in their countries, and they soon found that to be a huge mistake. Interestingly, and thinking about, Ron, some of your comments in the Chronicle, back in March, news analysis, students may need a grounding in agriculture as much as in the liberal arts. Well, by golly, taking that and showing that to some of my colleagues at the college where I work, um, that was kind of an interesting thing for them to take a look at. And uh, the whole notion that before World War II, we had basically about 7 million farms in the U.S. 
Today, we've got uh, less than a third of that, with 1.2 million people claiming farming as their principal occupation, average age about 55, and uh, roughly 3.5% of all of our farms actually produce more than 60%. So we're talking about a large number of farms producing the majority of our food, and the agriculture is becoming more and more distant. I teach a vegetable production course. I focus on organic production, small-scale production, and there was an article in The New Yorker a number of years ago, no, no chive left behind. A little play on word, words there, and I give that to my students because the majority of them are absolutely clueless where a lot of our food comes from. These are students that primarily have an agricultural background, but in a very, very specific area. So as I think about uh, Nehemiah, and I think about the challenge that faced Nehemiah in rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem, I think about uh, our opportunities, whether it be in a Bible college in Africa, whether it be in any of our colleges, secular or biblical here in this country, why is it that we don't focus more on agricultural techniques? Why isn't it that we equip our missionaries who end up in difficult places to spread the love of Jesus Christ? Why don't we help them more in providing them some training to help others because they're often looked at as those who would have expertise agriculturally, but most of the time they do not. So we rebuilt that wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. So we have an opportunity and just as when the disciples encountered the man born blind from birth, and asked uh, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then, of course, Christ's answer, neither this man or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. We have a lot of folks in Africa whose work of God can be displayed in their lives as we take a look at what the Bible tells us we should be doing in terms of work there. And these are young boys and girls who have that kind of hope, have that kind of uh, promise that, that will happen. The responsibility we have, Lord, if you go back to Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And of course, the king replies, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And if you go back to Matthew 25 and you look at the response that was given to the goats and then the consequences of the response that was given to the goats, um, it is a good thing to go back and revisit. And so as we think about what we are commanded to do, to be obedient to God's word, for those who are in need, um, we have some challenges ahead of us and some opportunities along the way. Uh, I did some work in Nigeria last summer. If you are a Nigerian, your starch staple is cassava, and you spend a lot of time processing cassava, and that's where you get the majority of your nutrients, primarily starch. If you are a Ugandan, the average Ugandan, um, this may throw you a bit. The average Ugandan eats 442 pounds of matoke a year. Matoke is plantain. It's a starch. It's, it's our banana eaten green. It's not a sweet banana like we eat. But that's matoke. And these are actually um, the, the stems where they used a machete or panga to cut the matoke off. 442 pounds. It's probably about a pound and a quarter a day that they're consuming. It's a belly food. It's all starch. And as you travel the roads, uh, some of the paved roads in Uganda, you'll find uh, those taking matoke to market, pushing them on their, on their bicycles to get them where they need to go uh, to sell them. And that is what they eat morning, noon, and night primarily. Uh, but then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. We have more than matoke. We have more than cassava. We have more than a lot of the basic starch staples that we have 
and there are crops that they want to eat. And so in partnership with organizations like Chapin Living Waters, as you take a look at uh, simplified irrigation technologies, bucket uh, systems, which is where we started out at the Bible College before we established the uh, larger irrigation systems that we have, uh, we're able to grow a lot of those crops to help meet some of the micronutrient deficiencies that are there. And also in partnership with organizations like Hope Seeds um, and others to help grow. And these are wonderful evangelical tools, wonderful ways of helping to spread the gospel as we take a look at all the different ways that we can help share using object lessons and accomplishing something else as well as growing food. So I would suggest to you as we take a look at some of the things going on, uh, as I do with my students and other groups that I speak to, as I met Peter uh, for the first time a number of years ago in Uganda, uh, part of my brain pretty much figured out what Peter uh, who Peter was, what car he drove, the kind of house he lived in. And of course, I went and visited Peter in his house and met some of his children. And he lives in a mud hut and a thatched roof. And our brains always process everything based on our own frame of references. And until you have those new sets of experiences, it's very, very difficult to look outside that. There are about a quarter of a million species of higher green plants. And uh, as was mentioned previously, there are about 30 crop species worldwide that provide 95% of the world's food energy. Although we've used over 7,000 species, there's a bit of opportunity here to take a look at some of these others that we've not used previously. Similarly, 50,000 species or so for medicinal purposes. Uh, we have changed our medicine drastically in the last 25 to 30 years in this country, and that is being rediscovered as you take a look at places like Johns Hopkins, where uh, I know, Martin, you were here at this conference, underutilized plants, their role in preventative medicine, nutrition, and sustainability. Underutilized species, there's a long list of uh, items there that would explain them, but basically they're just crops that we could be using a whole lot more that we don't know a lot about. We don't know a lot about their biology. We certainly don't much know much about their horticulture at all. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity there for students to take a look at how we can use some of these. A lot of research, applied research that could be done here. So um, back in 2007, the uh, International Society for Horticultural Symposium on medicinal nutraceutical plants. There was some work that I did with Lyle Craker uh, out of the University of Massachusetts on, on this plant called Moringa. Um, Moringa uh, was described by the botanist Stanley back in 1937 as a tree of quite ordinary appearance. He was being very kind. It's pretty ugly, actually. Its branches, branches are easily broken, and it has little to recommend it. We have a lot to recommend it, and Dr. Price is primarily responsible, I think, in a lot of arenas for having made that recommendation to a whole lot of folks. Uh, it is a unique plant. It has a large seed pod, a very, very dependable seed crop. And interestingly, if you want a nice uh, website to go to, go to treesforlife.org. If you take a look at where uh, people need food who are malnourished the most, and you match it up where the Moringa tree actually grows the most, it's a pretty good fit. And so it's one of those underutilized crops that ends up in the right place um, if we, in fact, know what we might do with it. Briefly, in terms of the nutrition of Moringa, if you take a look at the fresh leaves, reported to have about seven times the vitamin C content of orange, uh, about four times the calcium of milk, four times the beta-carotene of carrot, about three times the potassium of banana, twice the protein of milk. Nobody will ever mistake it for chocolate. All right, you'd have to eat a lot of it when you compare it to the oranges, so there must be a better way to deal with it and get it in the diets of folks that need it. Um, the Moringaceae is a monogeneric family of about 15 species. Uh, it includes the giant bottle trees of sub-Saharan Africa, huge, huge store water storage capabilities. Um, my colleagues accuse me of picking a plant that's ugly and picking a plant that you cannot kill to do research on. Therefore, you're pretty safe and conservative in your selections. 
Uh, Pastor Nack said it's difficult to deal to kill a Moringa tree, recovers well from mismanagement. These plants I forgot about, 24 of them. They were left in a greenhouse that we closed up. Temperatures hit 48 degrees C uh, for three months. No drop, no water at all, no water. Like any good horticulturist, I walked in to open up the greenhouse for classes, saw the mistake I had made, said oops, and applied water. And 48 hours later, each and every one of them was growing. They were budding. All right? Absolutely amazing that a plant could withstand that. Uh, if you take a look at some of the literature that's been put out on Moringa, mostly, um, mostly food, uh, livestock, uh, some pharmaceutical-type work. Uh, a few folks have done some things to really get the word out. The lower left-hand corner, Dr. Price's article on the Moringa, Moringa tree that really kind of helped out. Uh, Dr. Jed Fahey from Johns Hopkins indicates that... Uh, uh, the nutritional properties of Moringa are now so well known, there seems to be little doubt to the substantial health benefit to be realized by consumption of Moringa leaf powder in situations where starvation is imminent. So when you go to Uganda and you take a look at the needs there and how cutting corn and burning it is still standard practice, and so we develop relationships, we talk about why did you do that? Why is that important? Because I don't want to make assumptions and find out that it's just standard practice. It's what we've always done. And the spacing of clumping corn together, not wide row spacing, not wide in row spacing, which we're doing here in this country now because it's the way we've always done it. So there's some things to take a look at. The first time I arrived in this particular area with uh, Andreas and Storico, uh, they had been given Moringa seedlings two years prior. And uh, basically the 100 subsistence farmers that I worked with from the Congo border to the Kenya border had all been given Moringa seedlings. Um, they were told that they would be wealthy men if they were to grow them. And they had planted them that from little seedlings in two years to those uh, trees that you see in the background with very, very few leaves. And everybody was poor and Moringa was a joke. So the first thing that I did was I started to pull some leaves off and eat them, and they thought I was a crazy Muzungu. Um, and we talked about the potential uh, uses of Moringa leaves and just started to develop a relationship about how they might be used. Um, the trees, uh, as you took a look at, can survive and withstand drought conditions. They're a prolific cedar, which is something that gives them total control of a crop. And what's unique, though, is that since it's the vegetation that's desirable, it's the vegetation that's not prominent when the conditions are dry. Uh, it drops its leaves. And so there's got to be a better way to try to figure out how to grow this in order to get some good biomass. You're looking at a stump. It's kind of washed out in the slide with some shoots growing up. I suggested to Andreas at one point, you know, if you were to cut down some of those older trees and coppice them, we would get some shoots coming up and we could start harvesting some of the leaves. And, and uh, Andreas's granddaughter um, translated for me, and uh, we left. That was back in July of last year. I went back in January, and sure enough, some of them were cut down and with the shoots coming up. And uh, when I went back and took a look, look at them, I was so delighted. I went to Andreas. I said, thank you, you know, to his granddaughter. Please tell your grandfather. And, you know, that was very good. We had that conversation. She talked talk to him and mentioned that. He shuffled around a little bit, dropped his head, smiled a little bit, and I knew something was up. And he looked at his granddaughter and said, um, tell him, I was not doing what he asked. I was just trying to kill them. So sometimes we think that we're doing something good, but that's not necessarily the case. So now we have a, a plant to manage. We have something that's close that we can actually cut and regrow. And two and a half years later, this entire area, they're, they're making their own Moringa leaf powder and adding it to beans, matoke, or whatever it is they're eating. Uh, back at uh, Echo, where I've been a couple of times, most recently in November, I learned of a place, uh, uh, compatible technologies, that they had actually uh, sent someone to Uganda to train them how to make a burr grinder. And in Kampala, Uganda, I found this place, found a burr grinder, and took it out, and uh, now we're able to actually mass produce 
uh, a lot of the leaf powder uh, to get folks taking more leaf powder as a nutritional supplement. Um, three tablespoons a day for a child and uh, six tablespoons a day for an adult. There's also beginning to be a market for Moringa seed. And so when I bring Moringa seed back to this country and send it out to, it actually is collected by the Vanilla Producers Association at the base of the Rowanzori Mountains. When we try to grow Moringa, there are some challenges. Moringa is a very monopodial tree. What it means is it basically grows like a telephone pole. And if you don't pinch the apical growing point and remove the site of auxin synthesis, the auxin that's basopedally transported down through the plant keeps all the lateral buds in check, from, keeps them from releasing. So uh, the work that we've done is to take a look at uh, the effect of the point at which you decapitate uh, Moringa seedlings and the extent to which they'll regrow from that point. I chose soilless culture because it's a method of production that I'm very comfortable with. It also gives us a lot of consistency in the work that we do, a lot less variation between the plants. So we took a look at lateral bud release um, based on how far we cut them back and we're also curious if uh, plants that were decapitated twice, repeatedly cut back, would actually um, persist or if they would even do better. Uh, one of the interesting things, you just took a look at a plant in God's creation that can withstand amazing drought conditions. You're also looking at that very same plant grown in hydroponic culture and solution culture. And there are a lot of uh, interest, there's tremendous interest in uh, biochemicals in the root biomass of Moringa, and this would give us a pure uh, root um, to take a look at, and it's pretty amazing that a plant could actually go in both those extremes as far as being able to be grown. It has a very, very heavy taproot. Uh, ironically, it trans transplants very poorly. It's been one of our problems in establishing the plant. And so we did a lot of work in terms of getting this plant to grow in hydroponic culture to take a look at the cutback uh, uh, rates of the plant, and we'll move to those pretty quickly here. A uh, little quick lesson in what's going on when you cut plant plants back. Um, when we cut plants way down to the first node, just above the ground level, we had about three buds released once we removed uh, the April, gr April gr growing point. When we went down a little bit further, um, actually up to the sixth nodes, we had a higher plant. We actually had more than twice as many buds release, which was kind of interesting. And when you take a look at the um, actual dry weight, that's uh, the number of stems that are produced, in both cases, basically two. And then when you take a look at... Ah, The dry weight in grams per plant for each of these, we ended up with um, triple the dry weight once we cut the plants back at node six compared to node one. Well, it's kind of an interesting thing because oftentimes when you see people prune trees, prune plants, there's not much rhyme or reason how it's done, especially if you take a look at the power company and how they might work trees around power lines. And so we thought there were some pretty interesting things going on here as far as what was happening. Um, Moringa, interestingly, is so strongly monopodial that if you only pinch the apical growing point, you basically create a stalled tree. You don't take off enough auxin from the stem tissue of the plant to release the buds, but you remove the only apical growing point the plant has. So essentially it just sits there and doesn't do anything. Once you take a look at how far down you have to cut the plant, as you move progressively further down through the plant's stem, you remove increased amounts of auxin which releases more buds for further growth. And so one of the interesting things, too, is the speed with which um, the plants released. In this particular study, uh, we took a look at the pinching and noted a big correlation between the stem diameter uh, as well as the height of node um, decapitation. Um, we're going to move back through here. We did a claxon, cl classic auxin replacement experiment where we replaced um, the decapitated portion of the plant 
with IAA to confirm that, in fact, auction was the uh, mode of action here. And then we took a look at something that hasn't been investigated, to the best of our knowledge, anywhere as far as regrowth. And there's a lot of potential interest in this as far as uh, browse, herbivory. And one of the things that we discovered um, or noted um, was that there's actually enhanced bud release from previously decapitated plants. So plants that are actually intact that have never been pruned by a person or browsed by an animal release far fewer buds. There's less risk involved. If you've been previously decapitated as a plant, what happens is there's a bud bank, there's development potential, and you have buds at sequential developmental points within the plant. So when you um, basically get your top removed again, the plant flushes incredible amounts of growth. And what this tells us is that there's a tremendous horticultural research that can be done on underutilized plants to figure out how we get more, in the case of Moringa, leaf biomass produced in a place like East Africa. And we're talking about one plant, one underutilized plant for which there's been basically no horticultural research, or very little. And as we take a look at all the other quarter of a million plants that are there, the ones that don't comprise the 30 that we spoke of in terms of 95% of the nutrition that we have, there's a lot of opportunity there for folks to work on. So as we kind of finish up here, let me get back down through here and take a look at those little buds as a release. Let me finish by getting to my last slide. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That hope is for these folks. And in keeping with my greeting of Jumbo to you, I finish with Asante. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Crosby.